I think it's the singular uh, cell phone company commercial that has the thing with the rollover minutes, which is the plan on your cell phone, which if you have extra minutes, uh, they don't go to waste, you get to use them when you need them. Uh, I'm sort of going to need rollover minutes for today's sermon. So if you look at the last few, they're in the 30-minute mark. We've been preaching short sermons. I'm cashing in on some of those minutes today. Uh, if you've heard Jim reading, uh, 39 verses in our text. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So let me pray, and we'll jump into this passage together. Pray with me. Father, we pause before we begin to together corporately acknowledge our need for you in this time. If left to ourselves, these words will be dead print on a page. These words in our ears will go in one ear and out the other. So we need your Holy Spirit to come and make something of this time that God's word would be God's word to us. Holy Spirit, you know what needs to happen in our hearts. You know the thoughts that need to be arrested and centered on Jesus. You know our fleeting attention and how it needs to be arrested by Jesus. And you know the places in our heart that need conviction or encouragement or rebuke or admonishment or complete transformation. And we ask that you would do all of that in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me recap where we've been. We're in a preaching series we're calling Talks with Jesus. We've been looking at various conversations that Jesus has had with various people throughout his life. And our hope has been to discover again, to discover afresh, to discover anew who Jesus is through the conversations that he had. We've been working our way through them for a while now, so we've covered a bunch of conversations. If you remember, we began weeks ago with Jesus talking to Peter, his disciple, and he makes this great confession about who Jesus is. And then Jesus sits down with old Nicodemus, and they talk about being born again, and Jesus battles the devil in the desert. As we've kept going, we've seen Jesus and heard Jesus talk to men and women, to the young, to the old, to children, to all sorts of people. Last week, we heard him call out to a rich young ruler and call him to sell everything and follow him. We've heard Jesus speak to all sorts of people. And by this point, we're sort of in the latter portion of our sermon series. We're about three-fourths of the way through, and so we've got this final section left. And chronologically, throughout Jesus' life, as we've been following it, we're now entering also the latter portion, the final section of Jesus' life as well. And so from here on out, the conversations that we'll listen in on will lead to the cross, to Jesus' death, and to Jesus' resurrection. So as a church, as a people who are getting ready to enter the Advent season, remembering the first hours of Jesus, this series will sort of juxtapose on top of that so that we'll be simultaneously remembering the last hours of Jesus. As together we enter this season getting ready to remember that he came, we're also going to be remembering why he came. Because surely, like no one else, Jesus was born to die. And so we're going to celebrate his first hours while at the same time taking in his last ones as well. So today we're in a conversation that Jesus has in Matthew chapter 23. 
You can leave your Bibles open to Matthew 23. It's on page 828 because we're going to be working our way through this passage. When you get to Matthew 21, two chapters earlier, you're entering the final week of Jesus on the earth. Matthew 21 is the last week of Christ. And so when you get to chapter 23, Jesus has already ridden triumphantly into Jerusalem, and this is the city where he will stay until he is put to death. So he's not going anywhere from here. He's in Jerusalem, and all that's ahead of him is the cross. And today we listen as Jesus talks to some crowd, some potential followers, and to his disciples about the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. This is who Jesus is going to be talking about. <clears throat> and as you hear this, you're going to hear, if you've been following through our conversations, through our series, you've already seen Jesus have several run-ins with religious people, right? But Matthew 23 is perhaps the most scathing discourse you will find in any of the Gospels and maybe in all of the Scriptures against religion and against religious people. Jesus is going to speak some of the harshest words you have ever heard him speak. To be honest, it's not so much a conversation or a dialogue because if you heard Jim read, he's the only one speaking. Jesus just gives this sermon, this discourse for some 39 verses and it'll continue into the following chapters as well. But you've already heard Jim read it, but I want to refresh you again to the language and the tone that Jesus uses. This is a very hard passage Jesus uses some of the hardest language you'll ever hear him speak. Let me remind you what Jesus says when he's speaking to the religious people of his day. He'll say words like, you're blind, exclamation point. Nothing wrong with their eyes, but that he's calling these men who claim to be the light of Israel, who are going to show everyone in Israel about God, he calls them blind. He'll add, you blind fools. And we, and we remember Jesus is the one who said, listen, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hell itself. Because the sin is not in calling a fool a fool, it's calling your brother a fool. Jesus sees them and he says, blind fools, blind guides, blind men, he will say. He'll call them hypocrites. I don't know about you, but we don't get warm, fuzzy feelings when someone looks us in the face and say, you're a hypocrite. And they'll go further and say, you're whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bones, rotting, putrid, decaying on the inside. He'll call them serpents and children of vipers, that they're the not only is he going after them, but their ancestry as well. You're a brood of vipers. He'll call them murderers who have killed the prophets like their fathers before them. He'll call them children of hell, those who convert others and make them twice as much a child of hell as they are themselves. Seven times in this passage, he will say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Exclamation point every time. 
you'll hear this refrain over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. So if you're going to hear these words from the mouth of your Savior, from the lips of Jesus, we need sort of some frame to hold them before we look at the conversation itself. We need to just get an understanding of why Jesus would use this kind of tone and this language in addressing the Pharisees. For one, as just a, a side, I hope that this text and its tone smashes our modern contemporary idea that Jesus was this mild-mannered, weak, soft, nice, good church boy who, who was sort of effeminate and who would never you know, touch our feelings or hurt our feelings. He would rather tiptoe around you than ever speak a hard word to you. This text destroys that idea. It, it demolishes it. Jesus is not seen here as a mild, weak, nice guy who won't go at them, but he's fierce. He's strong. He's courageous, more courageous than anyone I know. He's going at the religious authorities, the powers, the establishment of his day. And he's unrelenting in how he goes at them. He's like a prized fighter that goes jab after jab after jab till he hits them with this final uppercut. He just will not stop. There's something fierce about him. I think the reason that we have churches filled with weak men is because we have a vision of a very weak Jesus. I'll tell you, for me, autobiographically, for me personally, my vision of what it meant to be a Christian man was to be mild and meek and soft and never speak and avoid at all costs conflict or altercation or argument. And yet you don't see that in the scriptures. In fact, as you read the scriptures, you find that there's a godly fight in God and in all of God's men. There's a fierceness in their contest for what is right. You'll see it in John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist will stand at the banks of the Jordan River. The Pharisees are coming to be baptized and he says to them, I will not baptize you because you're going to hell. You're children of serpents. Those are strong, fierce words. He's the same one who will stand up against King Herod and do so till he literally gets his head cut off. You see the same fierceness and fire in the prophets. Jeremiah is always getting persecuted, maltreated for the way he speaks out against the false prophets of his day. Elijah, you see him standing at Mount Carmel in this scene where he's against 450 false teachers and he does not back down. There's a fight in them. And you see that same thing in Jesus. In fact, if you've read through the Old Testament prophets, you're going to hear that much of Jesus' language here sounds just like it does in the prophets. Right? Where have we heard, woe to you before? It's in the Old Testament, in the prophets. It's the prophets who would come to Israel and say, woe to you! And then pronounce God's judgment. And then follow it up with what their crimes and their evil was. That's the same backdrop. Jesus is now in his day speaking to Israel, God's people again, speaking to the heart of Jewish religion and to their leaders, and he's saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And he begins to enumerate their many crimes and evil. So the question we've got to ask is why this tone? 
Why this fierceness? Why this fight? Why this language? Why this apparent animosity towards the way of the Pharisees and towards the way of religious people? Here's what I want you to hear. It's because Jesus hates religion. Jesus hates religion. Now, I think we're going to have to just clarify that for a moment before we just leave it hanging there. I know that there are certain times in the scriptures that the religion or religion is spoken of positively when it's connected to faith in God and love for Christ. But you need to know that much of the scriptures speak of religion pejoratively, negatively. And so when we're talking about religion in this context, we're talking about all the set of ways in which man tries to get to God. All the ways, the deeds, the prayers, the piousness, the whole system of ways in which man attempts to get to God, Jesus hates religion. All that stuff that is disconnected from the heart, Jesus hates religion. And what I want you to see is that the gospel is altogether different. Jesus and his gospel is altogether different. My hope and prayer is that by the end of this, we would go, I hate religion, but I love Jesus. The prayer for Seven Mile Road is that we would be a people, and this would be a place that hates religion, but loves Jesus. All right, so in this passage, Jesus gives seven woes. What I want to do is, going through the text, give you seven reasons why Jesus hates religion. If you take notes, it'll be real clear for you. Seven reasons why Jesus hates religion. Here we go. One, Jesus hates religion because religion obeys God for the wrong reason. Jesus hates religion because religion obeys God for the wrong reason. Look at how the passage starts. 23.1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Do you hear that? They preach, but they do not practice. Jesus says, listen to everything they teach, because they're teaching what Moses said. It's good stuff, but don't do what they do, because they practice, not what they preach. We have that same phrase even today. He doesn't practice what he preached. When you don't practice what you preach, we call it a hypocrite. That's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite. And, and you know people in your friendship circles, in this city, in our culture, in our world, who hate the church, who would never come here with you because what do they feel about the church? It's filled with hypocrites. All those people are hypocrites. Religion produces hypocrites. It's, it's those people that cry out about something and then are found doing that very thing. right? It's religious people who cry out for sexual purity and against homosexuality, but then are caught in some terrible scandal and affair. We cry out for generosity and then we're caught in some financial scandal or we find ourselves and everyone knows us to be cheap. right? We're hypocrites. That's, that's what the world hates about religion. In this passage, you'll hear Jesus speak to the Pharisees seven times saying, hypocrites. But here's the thing. There's a, a, a sort of a shade, a nuance that we're going to get, we need to get. And how does hypocrisy work in religion? Because it's a little different. When we think of hypocrite, it's people who say one thing and do another. With the Pharisees, 
It's a little different because it's not like the Pharisees were crying out against getting drunk, but then when you went to some back room, 10 of them were sitting together getting wasted. That, that doesn't happen. They hated drunkenness in the public and they hated it in the private as well. So in what way were they hypocrites? When it comes to religion, hypocrisy works like this. You honor God with your behavior, with your externals, but you're far from God in your heart. This is the hypocrisy of religion. It's that you, you're not going to find anything wrong with their behavior. The behavior of religion, the obedience of religion is perfect. The flaw is in why they do what they do. The, the Pharisees were perfect in their obedience and behavior, but their hypocrisy is while they claim to honor God, their hearts were far from Him. Right? The problem with religion, Jesus hates religion, not because it doesn't obey, it does, but it obeys for the wrong reason. It's sort of like the parable Jesus tells of the prodigal son. Right? You know the story of the father who has two sons. And the younger one says to the father, listen, give me half my inheritance. And we know the story. He goes and spends it on wine and women and wastes his father's hard-earned money. And he comes back repentant at the end of the story. He hits rock bottom. But the elder son is who Jesus tells the story for us to see. Because what does the elder son do? Man, he doesn't waste a dime of his father's money. He stays home the whole time. His obedience is perfect. And yet by the end of the story, Jesus being the great storyteller that he is, you see that the elder son didn't have an ounce of love for dad. Not an ounce. That he was just as lost as the other brother, even though he stayed at home the whole time. And by the end of the story, the younger boy is in the house celebrating with the father. And where's the older boy? He's standing outside arms folded, angry at death. That's religion. Religion obeys God all the time, but does so for the wrong reasons. You may have heard this before. Religion says this, I obey, therefore I am loved. The gospel is altogether different. Because the gospel says, I am loved, therefore I obey. You hear that? Religion says, I need to work hard and obey so that God will love me. And the gospel says, I have been loved by God through Christ. And so I obey. I'll prove it to you. When we think of religion, we think of the commandments, right? We think of the laws of God. The laws of God, the commandments of God are found in Exodus 20. And if I asked you, how do the commandments begin? I think most of us would answer, it starts... You shall have no other God before me. That's not how Exodus 20 begins. Go back and look at it. Exodus 20 begins like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who delivered you from the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you see it? Grace and the gospel comes first. Obedience second. It's not, here are these ten laws and if you obey them, I will save you. But rather, I have saved you, I have liberated you, I have rescued you, I have freed you, I have delivered you, so have no other gods before me. Religion says you obey to get God. The gospel says you obey because God got you. God got you, and so you respond and obey. For those of you that are theological and more heady, 
This is the way religion works. Religion says my sanctification is the basis for my justification. That my progress in Christian life is the reason why I'm justified. The gospel says you've got it completely backwards. That your justification is the basis for your sanctification. You're declared right before God through Christ. So go and live a life like Christ. From the very first moment, religion starts on the wrong foot and it just goes to nowhere from there. It's flawed from the start. Fundamentally, foundationally flawed. And so you can't alter it. You can't tweak it. You can't improve it. You can't modify it. What needs to happen is it needs to be abandoned and you need to replace it with an entirely new paradigm, namely the gospel. Jesus hates religion because religion obeys God for the wrong reason. Second, Jesus hates religion because religion focuses on the wrong person. Religion focuses on the wrong person. Look at verses 4 through 6. They tie up heavy burdens, hard for people to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. You know who's at center stage in religion? You are. You're the focus. You're the star, you're the hero, you're the spotlight. Everything in religion is about you. Religion does a really good job of deceiving you into thinking it's about God, when in reality it's all entirely about you. Here's the way religion works. The Pharisees had laid on all these burdens on the people. They were experts in rules. They had God's commands and then they added commands onto the commands to lay down people, to establish who was really holy. This is the way religion works. Religion is all about man's continued work. So even if you believe there's a Jesus who died, how does your relationship with him continue? In religion, it's all about what you do. I can tell you for years of my life as a Christian, the whole thing was this roller coaster up and down based on me, my performance. Was I doing my quiet times? Was I going to church? Was I witnessing? Was I praying? Was I memorizing scripture? And on and on the list would go. And who was it all about? Me. Man's continued work. You know what the gospel says? It's about Jesus' finished work. Not man's continued work. It's Jesus' finished work. What does Jesus say on the cross? His last words. It is finished. Nothing left to add. Nothing left to contribute. Nothing left to... Throw on top. It is finished. The work of salvation is finished. Religion is man's work, and you know where it leads? To man's glory. Right? That's what you see with the Pharisees. They would take their phylacteries, these leather boxes that contain scripture, and they'd sort of literally put it on their forehead so everyone could see how holy they were. They'd hang their prayer shawls extra long so when they walked through the streets, everyone would be reminded of how pious they were. They were the kinds who loved human applause. They wanted the best seats at festivals. They sort of wanted to rush into church late and be ushered right to the front, showing everybody how important they were. Because religion is man's work for man's applause. But do you know what the gospel says? In verses 8 through 12, you can look at it. Jesus will tell his disciples, not so with you. 
You need to remember that the least is the greatest and the servant is the highest. And you need to not be about titles. You have one man with titles, God. He's father. He's instructor. All the rest of us are brothers and sisters. No first class citizens in heaven. No second class Christians. There's Jesus and then there's all of us. Because in the gospel it is God's finished work for God's glory. You see, the end of religion is religion will make much of you and little of Jesus. And the gospel will make much of Jesus and little of you. Jesus hates religion because religion focuses on the wrong person. Third, Jesus hates religion because religion seeks the wrong goal. Jesus hates religion because religion seeks the wrong goal. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. It's the passage that talks about how they love being paraded in the streets and recognized and called rabbi and they do everything they do for the places of honor. So here's what Jesus is saying. You know who was God on the Pharisees' lips? Yahweh. God. You know who was God in the Pharisees' heart? Human applause. Human approval. Celebrity status. Fame. And you know what religion does? Religion takes God and uses God to get something else. It has the wrong goal. It uses God to get that which you're really after. I went to a talk and someone described it like this. He said, when we don't worship God and have idols, we have sort of near idols and far idols. So near idols are things that we love and crave and consume so that we can get to our far idol, the thing that we're really after, the thing that makes us feel ultimate. So an example would be, if your far idol, what you're really after is comfort, some of us will have food as a near idol. And so we'll consume food in unhealthy ways to get us to our far idol, comfort. Or if pleasure is your far idol, you'll use sex in improper ways to get you to what you're really after, pleasure. You know what the twisted, disgusting, weird, perverted thing about religion is? You actually take God and you make him a near idol so that through him you get what you're really after. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They, they wanted celebrity status, fame, power, respect, applause, approval, and God was a means to that end. You'll actually take God and make him an idol to get after what you're really after. Like when the world does it, the people out there, we're disgusted, right? If a person wants fame, they'll show off their beauty and their body so that they can make the cover of all the magazines. And we see right through it. We do the same thing here. Except we use God to do it. So that if I want fame, I use God to get there so that everyone will know what a great speaker I am or singer I am or how pious I am. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's health, maybe it's wealth, maybe it's success, maybe it's a relationship. And here's the thing with religion. When you don't get it, when you, instead of health, get sickness, or instead of wealth, you lose your job, or instead of relationship, you're still single, you leave God. You bounce. Because it was never about God in the first place. Because in religion, you're using God to get what you're after. You know what the gospel says? You get God. You get Jesus because you get Jesus. And he's enough 
and he's all you want, and he's your treasure, and he's your great reward, and he's your portion forever. That even heaven is just icing on the cake. You're not chasing God so that you can avoid hell and get heaven, but heaven is heaven because Jesus is there, and we will be with him forever. Jesus hates religion because it seeks God for the wrong reason. It obeys God for the wrong reason. It focuses on the wrong person. Fourth, Jesus hates religion because religion sees God's commands in the wrong light. Look at verses 16 to 21. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it, and, whoever, and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. Here's what's happening. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks to his people in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, listen, I don't want you people making oaths. Here's why Jesus was saying that. In that day, people were finding ways in which their word could really be trusted. So if you really wanted to know if you could trust someone, they'd have to swear by the temple, or swear by the altar, or swear by God. And Jesus in Matthew 5 is saying, listen, don't make oaths like that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I want you to be people of integrity at all times, not if you swear by the right thing. Here's what the Pharisees are doing. They had taken this whole system and created loopholes. Loopholes in which you really had to keep your oath or not. So if you swore by the altar, you were okay. You could still lie. But if you swore by the gold of the altar, oh shucks, you have to keep your word. Or if you swore by the temple, you could you know, fudge a little bit. But if you swore by this, then you were okay. They had to create loopholes. Why? Why did the Pharisees need to create loopholes? It's because religion sees God's commands in the wrong light. You see, when you're in religion, God's commands are an incredible burden to you. You see God's commands, and they are a burden. If this is the way you're going to get in, if this is the way you're going to get God to love you, you finally realize you can't keep them, and they are just shackles around your feet, and they drive you to despair, and inside you secretly loathe His commands. You hear David say things in Psalm 119, For I delight in your commands because I love them. And you can't say it in religion. Because you'll say things like, I keep His commands, but deep down I don't delight in them, and I don't love them. Or you hear 1 John 5, the commands of God are not burdensome. I remember that verse plagued me for so long because when I was honest, I used to say to God, your commands are terribly burdensome to me. Because in religion, God's commands are seen in the wrong light and they're an incredible burden. You know what the gospel says? The gospel says we're under grace and not the law. And so the commands are not a burden to keep us down. They are actually wings to set us free so that we can live the life God created us to live. The commands are not this nine to five dreary existence that we sort of get through. The commandments are like flowers that you give to someone who loves you. 
It's an expression of obedience. Obedience is an expression of love to a God who has already saved you. I obey because I am loved. And so his commands are not restricting me. They're setting me free to respond to this God in love, to live as I was designed, created to live. Fifth, Jesus hates religion because religion sees the trees but misses the forest. Jesus hates religion because religion sees the trees but misses the forest. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. Here's what Jesus is saying. In religion, you pay attention to the tiniest detail, but you miss the whole point. You pay attention to the smallest thing, but you miss the intent behind the whole thing. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, listen, you tithe out of your spice rack. If you have dill or cumin or mint, you tithe from the smallest thing, but you ignore whole chunks of God's law like mercy and justice and faithfulness. It's not that Jesus is against tithing. He's saying, do the small things, but Make sure that you do the big ones. Jesus uses a pun to sort of get this across, right? The word gnat is the word kalma. And the word camel is the word galma. So the people who would have heard this would have heard Jesus say, you strain a kalma, but you swallow a galma. And they would have said, oh my gosh, do you see how foolish that is? The gnat was the smallest unclean animal, the camel the largest. And Jesus is saying, listen, if a small gnat flies into your cup, you strain it. You take out your strainer because you can't be unclean. But you swallow a stinking camel. You pay attention to the details, but you miss the point. And he's right. Religion does that all the time. You read of the stories of the Pharisees, and what do they do? They want to keep the Sabbath law. And so they want to kill Jesus because he's going to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. You pay attention to the details, but you miss the point. Or John's Gospel gives you this great account. It's this tiny detail. In chapter 18 and 19, and Jesus is being dragged by the Pharisees to the house of Pilate to be judged. So they've falsely accused him. They've trumped up charges and arrested him. They've got a fake trial against him. They've beaten him mercilessly. They've mocked him. They've spit on him. They drag him to kill him to Pilate's house. And then John will tell us, but they didn't enter Pilate's house lest they become unclean. That's religion. You're going to kill God, but you won't enter the Gentile's house lest that somehow defiles you before God. You pay attention to the trees, but you miss the forest. You missed the whole point. Sixth, here's why the Pharisees missed the point so often. Jesus hates religion because religion is looking at the wrong thing. Religion is always looking at the wrong thing. Look at verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus hates religion because religion is always looking at the wrong thing. You know where religion's eye always is? On what's outside. Externals. All the time. Here's what religion is like. Religion is like you having a fridge with rotting food on the inside. I mean, just left there for weeks, days, months, maybe fungus and putrid, and it's just vile and nasty, and the smell is emanating to the entire room. And here's what religion does. Religion is you grabbing the Lysol and the detergents and the soap and the latex gloves and you sitting down and you scrubbing the door and scrubbing the sides and scrubbing the back and scrubbing the handles. And five minutes later, the smell fills the room again and you go back and you scrub the sides and scrub the back and scrub the doors and wipe down the handles. And you do that over and over and over again. Because religion is always focused on externals. You know what the gospel does? The gospel alone has the power to open the door and deal with the junk on the inside so that it can affect what is seen on the outside. Religion is always focusing on the externals, ignoring the internal. You know what the gospel does? The gospel changes the internal, transforming the externals. Religion always ends at behavior modification. The best it can do is change your behavior. Like if you were in college, when I was in college, I remember there was tons of guys who were committed to stop cursing, to stop swearing. So they would have this money jar in the middle of the dorm, and every time they swore, they had to drop another quarter or a dollar. By the end, they were all broke, because you just can't do it, right? But, but what's the point? What, what does religion do? Let me work on my lips, let me work on cursing, let me work on my swearing. You know what the gospel says? The gospel says you have such unclean lips because you have such an unclean heart. Deal with that first, and then it will make its way to the outside. Religion is behavior modification. The gospel is heart transformation. It changes you anew. The gospel's prayer is, Lord, create in me a clean heart and put a right spirit within me. In religion, the problem is always out here. In the gospel, the problem is way deep in here. And Jesus alone can change. In religion, you will put a pious pretense for everyone to see. You'll fool the entire world about what a good person you are. But God sees right through it. You're like a whitewashed tomb with dead men's bones on the inside. One last one. Seventh, religion. Jesus hates religion because religion leads to the wrong end. Religion obeys for the wrong reason, focuses on the wrong person, has the wrong goal, sees God's commands in the wrong light, sees the trees, misses the forest, concerned with the wrong thing. Lastly, religion leads to the wrong end. You look at verses 29 and following, and Jesus will say to the Pharisees, Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites! And he'll say, You are just like your fathers. They killed all the prophets, and you too will fill up the full measure of their sin. That you'll kill me, and you'll kill the messengers after me. Here's the end of religion. Here's the finish line. 
Here's where religion is going. You will end up rejecting Christ in this life, and you will be rejected by Christ in the life to come. That's the end. That's the sum of religion. You reject Christ in this life, and you are rejected by Christ in the life to come. In this life, you have got two options, two ends to what religion will do to you. Either it will puff you up with pride or shrivel you up with despair. Right? Religion will either puff you up with pride. So if these commandments are the way you're getting in, then either you will see them all and be blind to the fact that you don't keep them and you'll walk around incredibly arrogant, self-righteous, just a snob looking down at how bad everyone else is and how good you are and you will be puffed up with pride. Or on the other side, you'll shrivel up in despair. You'll see the commands and see that you can't keep them and you'll loathe yourself for it because you're hating your performance. You can never do what's required and you'll shrivel in despair. The gospel is altogether different. One man said, this is the end of the gospel. It's humble, confident joy. You're humble. Someone comes up to you and says, you know you're a bad person. You go, you have no idea. I'm much worse than you think. Someone goes to you and says, you know you're a liar. You go, you don't even know what I'm thinking in my mind. I'm much more of a liar than you know. I mean, it's something completely different. You're humble. You've got nothing to point to in yourself. You've got nothing to prove in yourself. It is Jesus. You look at another sinner and you go, there go I, but by the grace of God. Humble. No boasting, but in Christ alone. But at the same time, incredibly confident. Not arrogant, confident in Christ. Jesus has accepted me. Jesus has forgiven my sins. Jesus has washed my soul. Jesus has adopted me into his home. Jesus has secured eternal life. Jesus is my portion forever, my eternal reward you have incredible confidence. Humble, confident joy. You weren't in this to get something else. You were in this to get Jesus. So come what may, joy. Come sadness or happiness, wealth or poverty, sickness or health, you have Jesus. And his joy gets you through all of it. Jesus hates religion because religion leads to the wrong end. You know how the gospel ends? The gospel gives you Jesus in this life and Jesus forever in the life to come. We could keep saying a lot more, but here's what I want to do to end. You know, when the prophets would come to Israel and they would pronounce these woe to use, these judgments against the people, it was always this blend of intense anger and fury representing God's judgment and holiness, but mixed inseparably with heart-wrenching sorrow. Hear that again. When the prophets would say to their own people, woe to you, and pronounce God's judgment for their sins, it was intense anger and fury, but at the same time, heart-wrenching sorrow. You didn't pronounce to your own people, your brothers and sisters, woe to you with a smile on your face. You did it with tears streaming down your face because these were your people and you had great love for them. No prophet rejoiced in God's judgment. Their hearts were broken over it. So hear how Jesus concludes this passage, 37 to the end. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Jesus does not pronounce these words even to the Pharisees with a smile on his face, but rather with a heart breaking for them saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, religious people. Resisting, rebelling, proud, religious, prophet-killing, persecuting people. Oh, how I long to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her children. Jesus holds out great hope even for the religious and says, Oh, would you come? Would you come because I long to gather you like a hen gathers her children. He does not say this with a smile on his face. He pronounces Matthew 23 with a broken heart for these people. It's like the story of the prodigal son. The last scene is what? The elder brother standing outside and does the father ignore him? No. The story tells us that he goes running outside and he pleads with his son, come home. Come in, everything I have is yours. Come inside, my son. Come inside and inherit this party, this celebration for your brother and you. Jesus ends this passage pleading with religious people like us. Repent, forsake religion, and take Jesus and come inside. Oh, how I long to gather you like a hen gathers her children. So let's, like Jesus, hate religion, but love Jesus and his gospel. Let's pray.